One, two, three. This is the Cider Ranch Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Mike. All right, one, two, three, and go. Hello to all of you crusts and tendies out there. I'm Mike. And I'm Ben. And welcome back to another episode of the Side of Ranch podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a very exciting guest to announce. He is a fellow Canadian with a passion for health, fitness, and wellness. He owns a popular YouTube channel where he provides an unlimited amount of information and introspection in regards to triathlon training. His passion, drive, and genuineness for creating good content is evident in all of his videos. Hopefully, by the end of our chat, we'll be considered honorary trainiacs. His name is Taryn, but you might know him better as Triathlon Taryn. Taryn, welcome to the show. <laughs> Guys, thanks for having me. Like, everyone says that at the start of podcasts, but genuinely, I'm very appreciative when people ask to have me on. It's fun to talk about this, especially with being isolated from a lot of people around the world. This is like yeah. a good chance to feel connected and make some new pals. So thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. And I Absolutely. know you have your own podcast as well. And are you finding that it's um, pretty easy to get guests on that lately with everything going on? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. We haven't actually recorded one in about five weeks because we had about a six week backlog of oh, podcasts because just everyone in the world was not training a lot and had a lot more time on their hands. So there was one week where we did something like five episodes and yeah, just easier to line up guests. And the real neat thing is that people now, it's like when you get them on, everyone's willing to chat for an extra half hour because yeah. at the yeah. start of lockdown, people were like, hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. so concerned about how everyone's <laughs> doing because they don't see anyone any, anywhere. So uh, yeah. Yeah, the podcasts have been a really good way to just keep in touch with people around the world. That's good. Do you find it's uh, quite a different realm than compared to YouTube? Oh yeah. Yeah. Immensely. We started the podcast because I started doing a couple of interviews on YouTube. And what I was finding is that, all right, it was great to do a YouTube interview, but that YouTube interview had to be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So it wasn't really much of an interview, Yeah. but then with a podcast, you can talk for half an hour, an hour, pull the Joe Rogan three hours. Like it yep. doesn't talk for as long as it's interesting. Yeah. And that's what we wanted to do. So essentially it was just an extension of what we were already doing and just finding a better place for it. Right. Right. Um, so, so Taryn, I just wanted to kind of start off um, this interview because um, I've actually been a big, uh, like an avid watcher of your YouTube channel for quite some time going probably about a year and a half now. Um, and I wouldn't consider myself a triathlon at all or a triathlete at all, but it is definitely something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I've been just, I've been running lately and I've been really looking at getting a bike soon and that's, and I want to start swimming. So I really want to start getting into that route. Um, and I know with yourself, you have a very inspirational past in regards to starting your triathlon journey. Um, I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of insight as to what motivated you to begin training and what started that journey for you. Well, my background is not in any sort of sport at all. As I'm sitting here in my studio, I look across and on the wall, I've got two posters 
of me at a charity curling tournament. Uh, spiel to us Canadians. <laughs> yeah. And I used to be a kind of a semi-professional curler. Cur oh, wow. Curlers are known for being very fit. And I wasn't. And I was as much of a curler as you would have expected 20 years ago. I'd drink hard, party hard, and then wake up in the morning and curl. And that catches up to you in your mid-20s. I became pretty overweight. I was 215 pounds at one point. Couldn't run the length of one house, like 100 feet, 200 feet. Could not run that far. Couldn't swim. Didn't own a bike. And I just started, started gradually losing weight through weightlifting and like bodybuilding diets and things like that. But none of it really ever stuck or, or was fulfilling or any fun until at one point I decided to do triathlon and I just wanted to do it to see if I could. And I did the very shortest distance that I possibly could a try a try of a 300 meter swim, a 13 kilometer bike and a three kilometer run. But I was hooked as short as it was, it was 42 minutes of suffering pain. I did not do very well, but I was hooked because that feeling of like my heart beating and the butterflies in the stomach before the gun goes off, I never felt that in real life. I never felt that at work. I never felt that lifting weights. I never felt that when I was playing just curling even because it's so slow paced, but triathlon was real. Like triathlon is that real sense of not knowing if you're gonna be able to do the task. And that was exciting and that's what hooked me. And that was 11 years ago now and it wasn't a, a, a quick process for me to become a triathlete. And really knew what I was doing but I loved the process because there's a lot of fun things to figure out and it's yeah. exciting while you're doing it what what do you think it is compared to uh, other I mean with bodybuilding and just lifting weights in general because I know that's what a lot of people tend to gravitate to especially in your mid-20s and early 20s that seems to be the norm for a lot of people what do you think was it about um, the triathlon that really gripped you was it because you were saying about the heart racing and everything was it just the um allure of it like chasing that goal the big thing is that you don't know if you're going to come out alive really is sort of the feeling <laughs> of it a couple of friends and i about three years ago we did a marathon swim of 37 kilometers in open water oh, oh my god and afterwards we we're getting <clears throat> interviewed by some people and of course the question was like why would you do this? <laughs> and separately, all three of us, we had the same answer. Like, it's a great feeling to go on an adventure. And an adventure that you don't know if you're gonna be able to do it. And when we hopped in the water at the start of that 37 kilometers, we didn't know if we were gonna be able to do it. One of the three of us actually wasn't able to do it. He pulled out with 10 kilometers, six miles left. And that feeling is a little bit exciting because, you know, when are you ever challenged by something that, you know, failure is very likely. That's You're actually, that, that's actually really interesting because you, you know, you saying that for, um, you know, you know, not learning from, you know, we, something you're really good at is really, it's really easy. You know, we don't learn from things we're good at, but we learn from things from failing. So it's interesting when you're saying that not knowing whether or not I'm going to finish that, that that's the thing that's exciting. So, yeah. you know, is it, be, is it because 
is it because the prospect of failure was there and you wanted to trump it? Is that kind of where the excitedness came from? The prospect of failure makes everything elevated. It makes yeah. the desire to train much more um, intense because you're worried that, well, if I don't train, I might not finish this thing. And then the desire to figure out your nutrition, the desire to figure out every last thing that you can, the desire to get into a strength training program to make sure that you don't get injured on the way to that, that goal, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be swimming 37 kilometers, but it could have been the 42 minute sprint try a try. That was scary to me when I first did it, like equally as scary. And when you go in not knowing how it's going to come out, your, your senses are alive because yeah. you, want, you just want to be aware of everything that's going on just because you're in this real flight or flight mode of like, yeah. this is real. <laughs> this, yeah. I might die is kind of that feeling <laughs> that everyone has at the start line of a triathlon. And that's exciting. And that's, yeah. what, that's what humans evolved with, with dealing with almost yeah. every day for tens, hundreds of thousands of years. And we don't get to experience that very often in our entire lives in modern society. And I think that that fear is a little bit of little bit good for us like it, yeah it absolutely keeps us motivated it keeps us excited it keeps things feeling fresh yeah do you, do you find too that once you overcome that thing and you recognize that hey that actually wasn't as bad as i thought you think how much do you think even just training for a triathlon or anything endurance related or anything that seems so outlandish how much of that is mental oh enormously when you when you get into triathlon, Mike, because it's like a black hole, it just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you'll get into it eventually. <laughs> yeah. You'll find the exact same thing that just about everyone finds that, that at the start going for, call it a, a 10 kilometer run seems long. But if you start training for an Ironman, before you know it, a three hour run will be normal. Wow. And uh, I remember this last year as I was training for my first Ironman distance race that the very first 90 kilometer bike ride I went on, I had the entire bike full of gels and bars and nutrition, saving things like all these vinegars and hot shots and things that in case I ended up in a rough scenario, oh, what, what am I gonna take for nutrition? Oh, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get through this. How's the wind? And then last year when I was training for that Ironman, a 100 kilometer bike ride, was short. That was a rest day. Wow. And, and you go by like really quick, really like instantly. Yeah. Your perception of time just changes. Your perception of what's yeah. difficult changes. Your perception of what's normal changes. And yeah. that's kind of, it's kind of cool, but it's also sort of funny when you look <laughs> at it now after the fact and like, oh, I only trained eight hours last week. <laughs> <laughs> those are the things that kind of change in your brain as you just progress but yeah yeah you're training for your first try a try or an ironman distance race whatever that excitement is is, is worth it. it it's all the same yeah do you mind um and i know because i've i've been watching your videos for a long time but i was wondering if you can give a little bit of context as uh what the difference is between a, a sprint try and maybe up to a full Ironman? Yeah, so a sprint triathlon, that would be the 
shortest official distance. It's a little bit longer than the tri-a-tri. The tri-a-tri is not really an official distance. It's kind of just like a fun thing that races will do off to the side to get some beginners into. Mm -hmm. But a sprint tries a little bit longer than that first race that I did. And it's a 750 meter swim, a 20 kilometer bike and a five kilometer run. And it takes most people around an hour and 30 to an hour and 40 minutes. An okay. Ironman is a 3.8 kilometer, 2.4 mile swim, a 180 kilometer, 112 mile bike, and then a full marathon, 42.2 kilometers, 26.2 miles. And on average, I believe the average time is, uh, we just did a video on this, I should know the number. I think it's um, right around 13 hours is the average time. Wow. That's that is that's quite a difference. <laughs> it's a, it's just a long, slow day is all it is. Yeah. I um Another thing I was noticing too, I was watching um, Nick Bear's channel when you were training him. Mm -hmm. um, and he got to, I think he completed it in 11.58, 11 hours, 58 minutes. Yeah, there about. Or something. And yeah. um, that was, that like him coupled with your stuff, it was so interesting to see how, um, like even you said, someone that had, yes, he has this base of health and fitness and he, he was a bodybuilder before and he, he runs. And of course he was in the, uh, the military. Um, but the fact that it was such a challenge for him to, to change his way of thinking and everything. And that, and that for him was difficult, but he was able to do it. And then for somebody starting out, um, and trying to build their way up to a sprint, if they can have, find a way to get that same mentality, that would be amazing or just somewhat, small steps to build up to that point oh yeah nick is nick is incredible like he is a physical specimen yeah uh, i will never look like nick no matter how much i train the guy is 190 pounds of just ripped muscle yeah and i don't know if i could beat him in a flat out run anymore he's so <laughs> running but when he started he couldn't swim the length of a pool wow. and his biggest thing when he was training this was that he hated biking didn't like biking mm -hmm. longer than about 40 minutes and here i am prescribing six hour rides to him. <laughs> yeah. and uh and he found that that same thing that you're kind of talking about that progress of i think in his case it was five and a half months from when we started till his race day he went from not being able to really do a thing besides buy the necessary gear to in the few weeks right before the race, I saw his progress really sharpen up to the point that he would go out for those, a four hour ride and all of a sudden it was easy. And the wow. two and a half hour runs, he was like, easy day, no problem. And like that exact same thing that, that everyone experiences, that perception of time changes and that's when you start yeah. getting people at dinners and gatherings that are like, why would you do that? How could you do that? And you're like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it's pretty easy. You can do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I bet you, I bet you, you find that frustrating at times, where where you're, where somebody's like, "Hey, that doesn't make any sense. That's impossible." And you're yeah. sitting there going, "Well, it's not impossible, actually. There's actually a way to do it. And if you have a plan, you can execute it." Not so frustrating. I get it because mm -hmm. I used to be there. I still remember yeah. the time that I couldn't run the length of a house. I remember that very, very vividly. So. I know how bizarre it is to think that somebody could go and exercise for 13 hours straight. I just know that it's a lot easier than people think. They don't give themselves enough credit. 
yeah. essentially. Yeah. Interesting. Um, another another thing I wanted to to talk about was um, uh, zone two training because I know that's something that you're a big proponent of, and mm-hmm. you're always talking about that on your channel. Um, can you kind of explain what that is? And I think to a like for myself because I've been running a lot lately, and I'm trying to keep it in that range. Um, I don't have all the gear yet to really focus in perfectly on that, mm-hmm. but. Um, how does that work? How, what is the benefit of zone two training? Uh, I'll try to make this as quick as I can. So zone training, there are, I like to use five zones. Some people use seven, some people use nine, some people use three. Five zones are what I like to use. And essentially the first two zones are easy uh, and easy-ish, but a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Zone is fairly moderate. That's kind of where most people feel like they're exercising, but they can do it for a long period of time. That's where most people spend all of their time exercising. Zone four and five, those are when it's getting really quite difficult and it feels difficult, feels like you're, you're going to basically cap out, max out, and that's how it's supposed to feel. Most people spend their time in zone three. And the reason that it's detrimental is, is because you're at a physiological effort that your body is accumulating a lot of lactic acid that it can't flush out. Whereas in zone two, you're under that threshold and you can flush out the lactic acid minute after minute, hour after hour. And the benefit of that is that you don't risk overtraining. When you start accumulating all that lactic acid, that's where you start accumulating more cortisol. Your body has a harder time recovering. Your body has a harder time being ready the next day. Your body has a harder time sleeping. You're in a very sympathetic state. So you're always in a flight or fight mode. And then because that zone three is also very hard on the body, when it's time to say a few days later, do one of those real hard zone four, zone five efforts, you're not gonna be able to go as hard. Or if you are able to go as hard, it's really going to empty your tank. So then you're going to pay for it a couple days after that. Zone two, on the other hand, you can do it day after day, hour after hour, week after week. It builds just as much mitochondrial density, which is, that's what you're trying to do with zone two, zone three training, just as much mitochondrial density and mitochondria are like the energy producers in the muscles. So you're building just as much as zone three without all those negative consequences. The hard part of zone two training is that it's really a quite easy effort. And most people, when they start it, particularly with running, when you're carrying your body weight, your heart rate shoots through the roof and you can't stay under that zone two threshold. Right. It's critical to do that though, because when you start doing any distance race, even something as short as a sprint distance race, it's 98% aerobic. It's not power. It's not speed. It's, it's how fast is your slow pace essentially? How fast is your sub maximal pace? And the only way to make that sub maximal slow pace faster is to do it a lot. And zone two, because you can do it day in day out. What you see, if you're doing zone two training consistently is you're going to be able to stay at that same heart rate, 
but all of a sudden your running pace or your biking pace or whatever it is just gets faster and faster and faster and faster to the point that in my case now, I'll give you an example. The very first half Ironman I did, I was biking at about 180 watts. Watts is like how much power you're putting out and higher is better. Mm-hmm. 180 watts and my heartbeat was 160 beats a minute. Fast forward uh, would be three years later, no, two years, 2018, 19, two and a half years later, after two and a half years of real dedicated zone two training, I did another half Ironman race holding an average power of 230 watts. So um, almost 30% more and my heart rate was 135 beats a minute. So instead of then getting onto the bike wow. and, or instead of getting off the bike onto the run and being completely thrashed and hobbling my way through that first run, yeah. I went and ran easy because I was totally fresh. Right. Well, so that's what happens when you consistently just layer on good amounts of zone two training day after day is your easy pace becomes faster or you can go faster at the same effort. Right. And um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe um, from what you've said in your videos that you like to say 70 to 80% of your training, overall training is in zone two. Yeah. In a, in a year, somewhere in between 70 and 80% of your total time you spend exercising is in that zone one and two, the low intensity. Okay. And okay. What, what we do on, on our team is in the off season, say November, December, January, vast majority of the training is in zone one and two, and then gradually more and more builds up. So that 70 to 80% is over the course of a year. And right. some parts of the year where it's almost a hundred percent is in that zone two, but then wow. in race season, it's more like 50% is in zone two, but you're able okay. to handle it and absorb it because you bulked up so much on that zone two time in the yeah. off season. So if you consistently stick with zone two consistently, you'll notice, you'll notice those improvements um, without adding a lot of zone three and zone four training in that. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm wording both, that correctly, but yeah, both are important. Yeah. Yeah. Both are important. The low intensity zone one and two training, it builds your mitochondrial density. Mm-hmm. The zone four and five training makes your mitochondria function better. Okay. So they're, they're both important, but yeah, basically what you said is, is exactly right. The longer you do it, essentially the more benefits you get. My personal coach is a PhD sports scientist. One of the most published guys in endurance sports. He himself has won a world championship in Ironman racing. Wow. He has been racing for 25 years and he's still seeing benefits from zone two training. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah, he's still seeing his heart rate come down at the same paces. I, I think it's so cool that there's such a specific science and there's such a specific um, way to do things where you can continue to see results, you know, because like, you know, you know, I'm finding myself going to the gym now more that it's open. But, you know, in lots of your videos, you talk about, you know, working out smart or working things out. You know, and there's such a thing as improper training now. What I found really interesting is because I love swimming. In one of your videos, you kind of dive into some tips to make people not feel as panicked when they're swimming in events. Because you say a lot of times some people, 
you know, when they're, they're, they're putting their, their heads in the water and you say like a lot of times, a lot of beginners feel like they're short of breath when in reality, it's just built up carbon dioxide, like pushing down on them. So can you touch a bit on how you're saying um, in one of your videos, you say like blowing bubbles and like submerging yourself down low can help get rid of that like panicky feeling. Cause I thought that that was really mm -hmm. cool. So how does that work? Yeah. The, the feeling of being short of breath and feeling like you've got to take that, <gasps> that really big, <gasps> Like wherever it is, whether you're in the pool or just out and about or you're holding your breath sitting on the couch, that, oh my goodness, I really yeah. need to breathe. That's yeah. a buildup of carbon dioxide signaling your brain saying, I really need to breathe. So what happens with a lot of new triathletes is stick your face in the water and you're spending 90% of your time with your face in the water and our brains are just wired to say, all right, my face is in the water. Don't breathe. Yeah. Seal right, off everything. Right. Seal off my yeah. nose, seal off my mouth, hold your breath. And then what happens is most new triathletes, they start swimming, they put their face in the water, take some strokes, hold their breath, and then are trying to maybe just blow out bubbles right at the very end before they catch their breath, or they're trying to blow out and take in air when they turn their face at the same time. And what's happening is they're not getting enough of the carbon dioxide out right. to feel like they don't need that that big big panicky kind of breath so what we encourage new triathletes to focus on is instead of focusing on the big breath in focus on just a steady stream of bubbles out and that requires instead of going and swimming and swimming and you know swimming a bunch of laps we encourage people to just take a few weeks to stand on the edge of the pool put your face in the water Heck, you could even do this in the sink, in your kitchen yeah. sink at home. Put your face in the water and blow bubbles slowly. Hum is something that we say, just yeah. hum to blow bubbles. And see how long you can extend that. If you can blow bubbles for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 60 seconds, without needing that big gasping breath, you're going to rewire your brain to, instead of when you turn your face into the water to, to hold your breath, you're going to rewire it to instead put your face in the water and you start blowing out bubbles, getting the CO2 out, getting rid of that panicky feeling to have to take a big breath. Wow, and that's just, that's so cool. That's just one little, one more little kind of scientific tip that I just, I was just listening to it and I said, it makes so much sense too, because you know, perception is reality for what we're learning for this type of stuff. And I, I think it's so cool that, that kind of psychological tip, you know, a lot of this stuff does seem like, you know, psychological in, in terms of you know training your mind and training your body at the same time to be able to like push harder you know going back to your you know the fear of failure kind of thing right so um yeah that's incredible that's awesome um yeah it's neat I, when you start diving into this stuff to learn that yeah like everyone's kind of dealing with the same things and it's either running folklore or triathlon yeah. it's like it's like the um what do they call it? It's like a rite of passage for yeah, triathletes, yeah. but nobody really looks and thinks, all right, here's what everyone goes through. Why do they go through it? Mm -hmm. Right. And what are the physiological reasons that they go through it? And there's physiological reasons for everything. Like if 400,000 new triathletes around the world are dealing with the same problems every single year, there's probably some commonalities there. Yeah. Yeah. And what can you do to fix it? And, um, that's one thing that I, I think if there's anything that, that we do well, it's because I was that 
struggling, panicking in the water, shin splinted, can't run triathlete and have progressed, I can look back where a lot of coaches who are former pros or who are PhDs or, or coach pros themselves, it's hard for them to relate to that feeling of like, I know you gave me a workout of 3K to do, but mm. I can't even swim across the pool. How is that supposed yeah. to Yeah. How is that workout supposed to help me? How am I supposed to pull this off? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we focus more on the, you know, let's let's make sure you're confident getting to your race. And then once you're there and you're confident getting to your race, we can work on the performance after. But yeah. if you're not confident getting to your race, you're probably not going to show up to a second one. Right. And it, and it kind of comes down to endurance in general. I mean, with these endurance races, you have to pace yourself. And from what you're saying, it seems like it, it is a slow progress, but you will see progress. Like even as simple as putting your head in the sink and blowing bubbles one day for five seconds. And then the next day, six seconds, seven seconds, even though it's one second each time or a couple seconds each time, you're still progressing and it's still yeah. a thing that's going to happen and you're going to get better as, as time goes on. Yeah. Exactly that. The running that I did, I, I'm not kidding you. I ran the length of a house. And yeah. one day my run was running around the block and I would run the length of one house and then I'd walk three houses and then I'd run one le length of a house and then walk another three. And then I progressed to, oh, I can run the length of one house and then only walk the length of one house. Like yeah. it, I, I didn't just get over that by learning some magical running stride. It was yeah. weeks yeah. running houses. <laughs> yeah. So what, um, actually you brought me back to my next point, actually it worked out pretty well. What, and I know you said um, you, you got to 215 pounds and then you couldn't run the length of a house, but what started your training? Like, did you get a training plan? Did you just start running one day or start biking one day? How did that start for you? The triathlon training started after I had injured a shoulder. Uh, I think I was, I was in a gym trying to show off to one of the cute 25 year old girls. And I'm like, <laughs> nice. I can bump off a lot of weight. Oh yeah. And yeah. <laughs> like, of course I was too shy to talk to her, but I was saying to my buddy, like, spot me. This is going to be pretty impressive. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh no. Not impressive at all. <laughs> nice. <laughs> But you have like what five? You had five plates on there, right? Not even close. <laughs> I was not a big bench presser. Two plates and a twenty-five, so I think that's two seventy-five, which is like, in bodybuilding terms, that's like, oh, a nice warm-up. That's cute. Yeah, still pretty good. But I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so I did that. Hurt my shoulder. Could not lift a thing. So just to stay somewhat active, instead of going to the gym and lifting weights, I went and I would walk on the treadmill. And after a few weeks, that got really boring. So I intermixed, walk on the treadmill one day, bike the next day, walk on the treadmill, bike. And then there was a pool and I figured, eh, maybe I'll go and swim one day. And that was how it started. And it was wow. years before I figured out what a training plan was. That yeah. first race was just completely done. Oh, I'm just, I just got to run a bunch and bike a bunch and swim a bunch and I should have it. And yep. I didn't have it but uh got there and didn't yeah. drink. 
Yeah. Did you did you if, have any gear? Oh, sorry, Benny, you go ahead. No, I was, I was just gonna say. I mean, it's, it's more of a. I guess it's more of kind of a, a three part question. I guess, but I mean, in in terms of the running, biking, and and swimming aspect of things, is there is there something more specific that you find either I guess new people are struggling with more in terms of the three types of exercise than compared to like either running, you know, or to biking or to swimming? Is there one that kind of stands out for more people that you've seen in athletes where? it's just harder for them to get a hold of things or swimming hands down hands down that is the big impediment to most people getting into the sport especially when they go and do that first workout trying to swim laps yeah. just about every single person that we talk to that finds us somehow on youtube they say i entered a triathlon i decided i had to learn how to swim i realized i couldn't do it i went to youtube and that's hundreds of thousands of people every single year that wow. that have that same experience because yeah. it's not natural. I mean, you can yeah. kind of muscle your way through a bike. People have been yeah. running their whole life. It's not that different from walking and we all walk. And sure, some people might have shin splints or lower back pain, but it's not as imminent as thinking you might drown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Drowning is a pretty <laughs> intense fear when you go from thinking you're a pretty fit, healthy guy like Nick Bear to yeah. thinking you might drown. <laughs> that sends some alarm bells like, holy smokes, I better figure this out in a real hurry. Yeah. Do, do you find like with swimming too, like once, once people start getting better with swimming, do they find it eventually translates to their running and their cycling? Yes and no. In my experience, it does translate to the running and cycling but that's more once you get to a more elite level okay for the first few years what most triathletes should work on is technique and comfort in the water not that high-end really intense aerobic you know working your heart getting up a, a good good heart rate a good like a good breath of you know feeling like you're working out in the pool Mm -hmm. It'd be a couple of years before you really build up to that. Because in, if you're a new triathlete and you're just working on really fast stuff, essentially you're just working at being working harder and being slower in most cases right. because you're really right. inefficient. So once you get past that, you build the foundation for swimming, then you can start working on that more intense stuff. And then it can transfer over to the biking and the running. But for the first okay. couple of years in triathlon, it's much more focused just to have better technique and comfort. And, and, and with the swimming as well, um, uh, what about people that when they were younger or I know, bef like when, I know when people are quite young, they go through swimming lessons and they get to a certain level, like, I don't know, in BC here, we go through to about seven or eight and then people usually start to drop off around then seven, yeah. eight or nine. Um, does that, do you find people that get like, have that base when they're younger and then they start it later on in life? Do you find that translates a little bit or is it like a brand new experience for them? Yeah, there's two answers. I call that those few levels don't drown level one and don't drown level two. That, that's my <laughs> yeah. joke for it. Like I went through don't drown level two. And when I started swimming, I'm like, I got this. I went through yeah. on level two. I was a survival <laughs> swimmer. I was fine. And I could not swim for the life of me. It's very, very different going through that 
don't drown just basic proficiency kind of swimming that we do when we're age three to seven. Yeah. That tends not to translate too much, but what really translates is if a child swims from say age eight to age 11, I would probably bet money that that kid would be faster than me after about three months of swimming. Really? That, yeah, that base of even just two or three years of swimming wow. in your developing years, that yeah. sticks with you for forever. And really? it is really frustrating as an adult swimmer, an adult <laughs> onset swimmer, who coaches adult onset swimmers to see the swimmers who were the kids, the, the adults who were swimmers as kids come in and be like, oh, my times are so slow. Like you're coming out of the water in the front 5% yeah. of the entire field and bitching yeah. about how slow yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> you're comparing it to 12 year old you who was faster. I hate you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. That's so hilarious. The, the thing that I was talking about with somebody just earlier today, more on the science front about you know, what is the real sweet spot for getting kids into some sort of sport? And it seems like the studies show that gymnastics and swimming are the two things that if you can just give kids like two, three years of gymnastics and swimming, they're going to have the body awareness, the strength, the mobility, the, the ability to swim to do any sport they want for the rest of their life. Wow. That's interesting. So I'm awful. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. But you know what though? You can make up for it in the run and the cycling. So you can leave them in the dust once you get to that. Yeah. Point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that Mike, but I know it's hey, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I am trying to suck up because at the end of this interview, I would like to be called an honorary trainee. I can't handle so. <laughs> I guess uh, I, I, have a, I have a kind of a specific question. Um, I was going to say what, what would be like a different, like, I mean, if there is one for you, but what would be a different, like eating or like you're eating or drinking like regimen before either like a triathlon compared to like a, like a, an Ironman competition. Is it, are there different like strategies that you have before you engage in each of them or is it kind of similar? Uh, you mean like a sprint triathlon versus an Ironman triathlon? Yeah. And in, in terms of like what you're like, what you will eat or drink, like, you know, just days leading up towards it or, or, and then during the day kind of thing. So a sprint triathlon, you really don't have to do much because it's over and done with, even at the longest point, about two hours. And if you're burning basically the maximum amount of calories that you can in those two hours, you're gonna burn about 2000 calories. And most people start a race, you just you walk around with about 2000 to 2500 calories worth of energy in your muscles and your liver. Mm -hmm. So nutrition for a sprint race, really not a lot. I know lots of people that have pasta and, and the night before and carb load the night before, tons yeah. of carbs yeah. during. Um, we're, we're just coming out with a nutrition book right now that's basically like, eh, for a sprint, if you think about nutrition, great. If, mm -hmm. if you don't and you train well, you'll probably get by. For an Ironman, very, very different. For an Ironman, there are months of low carbohydrate training sessions that you do wow. to start increasing the amount of fat that you can burn in the race because you've got to have 13 hours of energy and you can't eat enough to replenish 13 hours worth of energy. So you better make sure that you can access your fat stores. Mm. 
So you're training for months with lower carbohydrate stores, particularly with our method of training that we use. And you're starting to carb load two days beforehand. Uh, there's a very specific breakfast that I like to have the morning of. Every minute is scheduled and planned in an Ironman because wow. if it's off a little bit, it can have really big consequences. It, the insane. Ironman wow. marathon is just a sea of 42 kilometers of carnage from people. <laughs> oh my nutrition God. Yeah. Where, where do you find in like in a, in an Ironman that people tend to, um, I guess, have an issue with their nutrition or start to notice their body uh, shutting down? Is that, would that be on the run maybe? Or would that? Most would start to notice it in the last third of the bike. And okay. you can, just, you can just do the math on it actually that in a typical Western diet, most people will burn on average about 0.4 grams of body fat every single minute. And a well-trained athlete who's dealt with their nutrition right will get that up to around one gram to 1.2 grams of body fat per minute. And if you do the math of how much you can eat during a race, how much you're burning during a race, you literally just do the math and you go, oh, well, seven hours you run out of energy there western diet guy and the yeah, person that has done the lower carb approach or the alternative to get the same effect as training 30 hours a week which not many people do besides pros so right i recommend do it with diet and instead of 30 hours a week you can do 15 hours a week still do very well mm -hmm. you have energy for forever you can go for literally days but yeah the Western diet, the person that hasn't addressed it, you do the math and it's usually around that 130 to 160 K into the bike. You're basically out of energy and starting to run a marathon in an empty tank. Oh, wow. So, and, and you were saying, um, I was also uh, reading that you have a lot of um, gels and, or you were saying earlier, a lot of gels um, and different carb sources and different energy sources with you when you're actually competing. Um, how does, how do you, cause I know you store, how do you store that on your, on your runs and your bikes? How, how, and how do you access that? And how do you know when to access that? On a bike, what I end up doing is I've put, put any like bars or, or things that are packaged into my tri-suit, into the okay. back pocket at my lower back mm -hmm. underneath the wetsuit. So I strip the wetsuit off and then everything's right there. Um, yeah. On top of the bike, there's also a bento box where I shove a whole bunch of chews into okay. there. So the bike basically has everything already on it for the bike or it's in my back pocket for the bike. And then on the run, what I have trained myself to do is just to use Coke and water. So mm -hmm. on just about every single triathlon course all around the world, Coke is on course. It's got right magical elixir it's got caffeine really? got sugar it's yeah. easy to access really easy to digest and it's the same all around the world so you can go right. to germany you can go to puerto rico you can go to texas you can go to hawaii you can race in canada coke is the same all around the world right thing is about coke when you start taking it you can't stop so yeah. <laughs> it's we know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not something that you dabble in when you get into it. I'm hiding so, my McDonald's yeah. cup from me right now, Taryn. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I just take Coke on Coke and water. 
And at aid stations, I'll grab a cup of Coke, I'll grab a cup of water and just go with that. Right. So I don't actually, I don't really take anything on the run with me besides in my back pocket, I'll have a, the product that I like to use is Cramp Fix. It's basically just a straight vinegar with some spices in it. Okay. And if you start cramping, I take one of those and it's like a punch in the mouth that just sort of wakes up your brain and says, hey, look, like yeah. the world is not coming to an end here. Yeah. It's Mark like the smelling up. salts of triathlon. Yeah. We're doing a triathlon. Yeah. We're not cramping. Yeah. 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 Is that, is that like the sodium in it that, that, that gets into you really quickly? Is that what that is to alleviate the cramping? No, it's actually the neurological signal. So oh. historically, people thought that it was sodium, that that was the reason why you cramped because he didn't take enough salt. Right. And what you end up finding is you can do real simple studies on this with things like cramp fix that is just straight vinegar or a salt stick, like a, um, a tube of salt that they hand out on courses and you lick it, lick your thumb or you take some salt instantly or you take the cramp fix and instantly your, your, your cramps go away. Like that second oh. they go away. Wow. So physiologically, you can't absorb that that quickly. So you right. know that it's not because you're absorbing it. Yeah. And if you take salt pills, it almost tends not to fix it because you're not tasting anything. So right. more than anything, what studies have found now is that cramps are your brain's way of saying, hey, this is too hard. You got to stop. And I'm going to give you a cramp to shut you down. Right. Now your brain's lying to you and you tell, you can tell it to F off. Yeah. So there's actually nothing physiological happening at all when you have a cramp. There is or, like physiologically, it's giving you a cramp and you have a cramp. But yeah, physiologically, right. it's not like your muscles are failing. Your, your oh, muscles so what? aren't okay, shutting that, down. They aren't. That's interesting. Essentially it's just your brain saying, Ooh, this oh. is getting a little bit hard. Maybe you should stop. Oh, but wow. really, it's like you are so far away from actual physical failure. And that's why you see <laughs> everyone. If, if you go to the Ironman World Championship, you will see everyone from miles like mile 10 to mile 24, basically walking, limping, not knowing if they're going to be able to continue with the race. They get to the finish line, everyone's sprinting. Every single yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. So there isn't physiological failure. It's just that your brain is telling you to shut down and you've got to figure out a way to override it. And yeah. that real strong taste of the salt or of the vinegar is, it's kind of like how boxers use smelling salts and boom, yeah. they're back. It's more like that. Yeah. It's interesting too, because speaking from personal experience, I don't have a ton, but um, I did a long run just the other day. I did an hour and a half. And when I got to just about the last, I want to say 25 minutes, I was struggling, not struggling so much. Uh, I don't know if the term is right, anaerobically, but my strides were getting shorter and my body was just starting to feel a little sore. And then in the last five minutes, and I realized, oh, I got five minutes left. I'm almost done. And then I just started turning it on. And then there was a minute left and I realized I've got all these reserves and I just booked it. I was not quite sprinting. I'd probably say I was pretty close to zone five, I would say. And then, but yeah, it was, it's, it's to me, it was like that. Oh, I'm almost done. Let's go. It was like a hit <laughs> of endorphins or something. I don't know. It happens every time I do it. Yeah. And if your body is literally shutting down, 
you wouldn't have that sprint. But yeah. just like just about every single person crossing a finish line is sprinting. Yeah. Interesting. I think it's yeah. so cool how how much the mind plays a, a massive part in in being able to, you know, accomplish these feats. Like you're saying, like, it seems like there's so many little tips and tricks that you're, you know, not just, you know, not just the diet, but not just, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, the, like the training, but just, you know, the mind plays such a massive role in being able to accomplish these types of things, you know? So, yeah, I just find that so cool how, you know, you know, especially with like the smelling salt thing that you're talking, or sorry, the, um, the, the salt and uh, yeah, mm. like akinning it to basically like smelling salts in a hockey game. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's not even at the amateur level, but it's all the way up to the pros. There's yeah. uh, a local uh, Canadian Olympic hopeful, Tyler Mislachuk, who is going to be basically our best chance at a gold medal in Tokyo whenever it happens. Yeah. Uh, he's a friend. He grew up close by, and we were doing some training while he was in lockdown together. Wow. And something that he said is VO2 max, basically, it's the, the maximum amount of oxygen that your lungs can process in a minute for years that was looked at as like the thing that if you can improve your vo2 max you go faster no ifs ands or buts about it right but what's actually happened is in tyler's case and in just about everyone's case you can improve your vo2 max by about 20 30 percent over the course of your lifetime and after that you're done but somehow Hmm. people still get faster so in Tyler's case, what he says is like, he maxed out his VO2 max as far as what it is years ago. Yeah. And since then, all of his progress has just been mental training. Yeah. Can, wow. can you hold, in his case, a 240 kilometer for 5K? Oh. Or 10, like, can you do that? And yeah. five years ago, the answer would have been no. And you right. do it a few years, you know, maybe one year you, you can do one 240 kilometer in a row and then the rest are three minute kilometers and now he can rattle off a bunch and it's not that he's really physically that much different because his oxygen levels are just the same as they were but mentally he knows he's able to do it he can withstand that pain a little bit better he can ignore it a little bit better he can hold that pain a little bit better yeah it's it's interesting that like the brain is really what drives all of this yeah interesting that's yeah uh, I, I go ahead go ahead this oh is no sorry into the weeds here I reckon that, like yeah I, 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 the podcast for beginners <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah yeah this is awesome no, but it's but it's interesting too because like we we want to we want to learn this stuff and for us it's if we can find something that that we don't know anything about and we really don't know a lot about this stuff at all and it's just interesting like especially going back to the the cramping thing and how it's mental and it's like it's just crazy how that works and then but it but it really comes down to the way you adapt and the way you kind of um it's like you're setting a barrier for yourself and if you and if you are willing to break them down then you can you can pretty much achieve what you want and like you were saying when it comes to a vo2 max and maxing it out and then having that uh, consistency and that ability to keep improving over time, even though you've already maxed out one aspect of it. I think, uh, I think for some people, they might think, Oh, I'm already at this pinnacle and I can't get any better. But some people like uh, your friend you were mentioning um, recognizes that he can be better. And even though mm-hmm. there, this is just one aspect of it that's saying, 
okay, you've maxed out here. You can't get any better. Instead of saying, okay, I'm, I'm the best there is. He's going, well, no, 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 I'm not. And I'm going to keep getting better and better because I want to improve. And I see these benefits every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's really neat to see what people can will themselves to do. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a question versus, no, you go ahead. You go ahead, Benny. I know it's hard with with zoom. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I I was going to say, I had a question too, because I was watching another one of your videos and we were talking about like tri bikes versus road bikes and, and just how some specific degrees of angles can make a difference. So you were saying that like with, with road bikes, they kind of come up off the ground a bit more bringing your whole kind of body more, you know, up with, with your, with tri bike, it's basically level more level to the ground. You're saying that the road bike is kind of around 80 degrees where the tri bike is 90. So like in a nutshell, how, where does that, you know, how does that 10 degrees of impact or no impact like training and things like that? Like, is there that much of a difference? Yeah, it makes a really big difference as far as when a triathlete is biking, because you're out there on the road by yourself, mm-hmm. you are essentially just pushing your body and the bike through the, the air and 80% of the drag from that, that you have to push through the air is from your body, not the bike. So all these fancy dancy high-end bikes, it really only amounts to 20% of, of the aerodynamics that you're gonna benefit from. Mm-hmm. So if you can make your body a lot more narrow, tucked in into the wind, it's called being into the aero position, you're gonna go a lot faster at the same effort. So triathlon bikes are made for being in that tucked in position. But when most new triathletes get into the sport, they use an old road bike or an old trail bike or a city bike or commuter bike, and that's totally fine. The issue with it is that when you get into that tucked in aerodynamic position, your hips close a lot more. So the angle between your torso and your legs is a lot more narrow, a lot more closed. So that burns oh, out burns out the muscles around your hips unevenly. So you get off the bike with this fatigue that's imbalanced. And all of a sudden you've been scrunched up so much for call it as much as seven to eight, nine hours if you're in an Ironman. And that's a situation where people cramp because their body is getting off the bike and saying, holy smokes, you know, I should be running, but mm-hmm. I'm basically running with only half my available muscle groups because the other half are so burnt out because they were doing all the work because I was scrunched up that cramps start happening a lot quicker. Whereas in a triathlon bike, your body's opened up a little bit more. So it's a little bit more comfortable. The muscles fatigue a little bit more evenly. That said, ride whatever bike you want for the first few races a triathlon bike is we wrote a a book for new triathletes and it was like 12th or 13th on the list of things that you should buy really only worry about buying a triathlon bike once you know you're going to be in triathlon for a lot of years yeah interesting um in terms of um a road bike as well because that's something i'm looking at getting uh next yeah man definitely definitely i've i've I know, I know, man. It's I've, I've been going to a bunch of stores and, and really starting to price them out. But right now with COVID, they're sold out everywhere. I can't find mm-hmm. any bikes. And I and I was uh, and I was also kind of tempted to look online and go that route and purchase one because I got kind of fitted for one, so I know what frame I need. But how would you recommend going about your 
let's say I wanted to buy a brand new road bike. How would you go about doing that? Uh, first, I know it's kind of a hard question, but. Uh, not really. I get asked it yeah. a lot. First thing I would say is if your price point is $2,000 or less, don't mm -hmm. buy brand new. Buy a used okay. Because that $2,000 or less road bike is a really, really common price point. So you get a lot of people that buy a bike in those price points, ride it a few times, decide to sell it on Kijiji or Craigslist or whatever it is. So yep. you've got this massive surplus of bikes in that price point that are available. So you're never going to make your money back off of it. It's going to depreciate right. right away. You're going to have a hard time selling it if you can at all. Mm. Now, if you go over that $2,000, then you start getting into bikes that are nicer. They've got nicer components. They're going to hold their value a lot better. But if you want to stay under that price point, which is where I recommend most people start, unless they're totally made of money, mm -hmm. start with a used bike, let somebody else do the depreciation on it. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to save maybe $1,000 wow. and use that money to buy a helmet, some wheels, make sure the chain is well taken care of, take it to yeah. your bike shop, get it fixed up. Yeah. You're going to have as good a bike with better parts, better helmet, better wheels, better and, and more money. Yeah. And yeah, it's not really until you get into that. I would even say $3,000 or more that I would okay. say Holy moly. Be buying a brand new bike. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's I insane. At, I look at two bikes that each one of them was worth more than my first uh, four cars combined. What? <laughs> Is well, that? Hopefully I've got some good sponsors that help with that. Oh, for sure. Is that, are those the Ventum bikes that you have that, is that those ones? Yeah. Those ones are really nice. Yeah. And I, I, I saw you got one sent to you and was it last <laughs> year that one, that older model that you set up for your uh, Zwift and your on your trainer? Yeah. Yeah. I've got one of their throwaway bikes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, uh, the joke is you're going to find this pretty soon, Mike, that the amount of bikes that you need it, the formula is N plus one. Yeah. Where N is the number of bikes that you have at the moment. <laughs> always need one more. Always yeah, yeah. More. Yeah. So nice. I've got one, one bike set up just on my trainer for training inside. I've got a race bike for triathlons. I've got my training bike, which is just a road bike. And then I've got a, a fat bike for biking in the winter, like the big five inch tires. Nice. That's amazing. Holy so it's, it, it sounds like once you get into the sport and you get serious, it can be expensive, but yeah. it sounds like it's a lifetime type of thing. And you're always going to be looking for the next, the next thing to, to kind of do. I would probably be better off financially had I taken up drugs. <laughs> <long. laughs> nice. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. Um, I just, uh, one last question before we kind of get to, I know we're nearing the end here, but um, one question I had, especially um, because uh, with weightlifting in general, um, I know everyone talks about supplements like protein powder, uh, creatine, branch chain amino acids, um, omega-3s, vitamin D, all that stuff. What are some supplements that you would recommend for someone just starting out with endurance training or triathlon training um, for somebody even who's looking to recover more quickly or just in general getting started? 
Yeah, you rattled off actually most of the, the legit ones. Oh, There's wow. a lot out there that are crap. Okay. There's about a half a dozen that I say, literally I was just writing this this afternoon that there's about a half a dozen that I have no problem saying every athlete should take, every person should take essentially. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D, the vitamin K is one of them. Vitamin D is like the precursor to healthy hormone function. Okay. Uh, and even though most of us say, oh, well, I get out every single day, it's not enough. And in order to assimilate all that vitamin D from the sun, you have to have certain nutrients in your body that are very deficient in North America. So okay. like 70% of North Americans are deficient in vitamin D and that's a terrible thing. So mm -hmm. vitamin D is one of them. Vitamin B is another. Uh, people tend to eat just too many carbs, not enough meat. So vitamin B tends to lack in a lot of people. Vitamin C is hard to overdose on and it helps immune function. That's a great one. Cool. Um, Omega-3, same sort of thing. Uh, just about everyone in Western society has too much inflammation and mm -hmm. Omega-3 helps buffer that. And then after that, well, I've got to think about, oh, if you start getting into triathlon training, a calcium supplement is important, okay. especially as you start training significantly. Mm -hmm. If you start getting up to Ironman, I'd say a calcium supplement is is 100% something you should take. And then okay. after that, it tends to be more things that are nuanced to the individual. Um, beyond that, you're, you're kind of getting one, 2% gains, um, or you're taking something that you don't need to be taking. And, and there are a lot of supplements, a lot of vitamins, a lot of minerals that are very beneficial out there. But do you need to be taking them? Do you specifically need to be taking them or do I? Don't know. And that's where you've started. You've got to get into testing and working with functional medicine doctors and things like that. Right. But those first handful of supplements that I recommended, just about everyone can take. Okay. After a workout, getting in some protein and some carbs, critical within the first 15, 20 minutes after a workout. And whether that's from whey protein or a vegan protein or a bone broth protein or whatever it is, I don't really care. Just get some in there. Okay. Um, and just quickly to go back, you mentioned calcium. Um, mm -hmm. what, are, what are the benefits of uh, calcium supplementation with, with triathlon training? So calcium is one thing that it ends up, even if you, um, how it was explained to me, I'll, I'll go back. So Ben Hoffman, yeah. a professional triathlete, he ended up getting a stress fracture in his pelvis area. Okay. And what he found in his studies of why it might happen, even though you might be healthy, even though you might be getting lots of vitamin D, you might be eating all the right things. When you start training a lot, what can happen is your muscles will leach calcium from your bones. So, and one of the areas that it'll do this in is in the pelvis area. So there was actually a span of about 14 months where Jan Ferdino, Ben Hoffman, Lionel Sanders, three of the best triathletes in the world all had the exact same injury. And it's really common to people who train a lot because when you train a lot and you aren't supplementing with bigger doses of calcium, your body can leach some of the calcium 
from your pelvis area. And the second oh, wow. step down on a, off of a, a curb a little too hard, or you fall on your bike, or you bump right. it into a wall, you can fracture your pel pelvis. So uh, really? Yeah, yeah, that is one that Ben Hoffman, he was like, every triathlete should be taking calcium. And that's just, that wow. type of injury is mainly led just from, um, from endurance training because of that endurance training. Yeah, just lots of training. There's one thing that, that is unique about endurance training is it is brutal on the body. That mm. things like CrossFit, things like bodybuilding, you're in the gym for like 40 minutes, 45 minutes. You're not out on the bike for six hours. Right. You're not running for three hours with heavy, heavy pounding. Maybe you're in the gym for 45 minutes and a grand total of 15 of those minutes, you're actually doing effort. Yeah. So it's brutal on the body. Endurance training is, make no mistake about it. I think that it is much healthier than doing nothing, but it's a many, many steps past uh, an appropriate amount of healthy behavior. <laughs> like it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a bad influence on your body. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. And I guess, I guess that makes sense too, for someone that just wants to go to the gym for 30, 45 minutes, four or five days a week, uh, compared to someone like yourself, who's training, um, is it 20 plus hours a week for your, for the Ironman training? That's gotta be, that's, that's, that's like a different beast entirely. Oh yeah. Well, they're in behind me. The, the listeners can't hear this, but there's a couch that last year while I was doing my first Ironman training, the training averaged about 17 hours a week, but the time spent on the couch was probably about 30 hours a week. Because like, hey, you get a strength session to do it. Nope. Yeah. Hey, can you put up this picture? Nope. Like, it was all encompassing. I could not will myself yeah. to do anything else besides training. So how, oh, sorry, go ahead. Like that. The other yeah. distance races are a lot easier. So how do you find the, um, like after you train, how do you find the motivation to do these YouTube videos and, and to keep, um, like to just have a, have a life basically after your training, how do you do that? Uh, Bill's got to be paid, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's my job now Yeah. YouTube, YouTube and writing books and, and the podcast is my job but it's a pretty damn good job. It's For a sure. very fun job that even when I'm tired to have a job where I talk about triathlon, it's a pretty easy gig that yeah. people are tired out there in the world. And when my job is talking to a camera about a sport that I love, it's kind of yeah. doing a disservice to people who have actual jobs. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. yeah, sometimes it is hard. Um, Sometimes it is, it is not super motivating or, or I'm not super motivated to do it or it's hard to be up and peppy for a podcast or to be on, on camera, but there are worse things than, you know, a few times a year when I'm really tired that I have to talk about triathlon while I'm really tired. I get through right. it. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. Cool. Well, um, we're just coming to the end of our, of our show here. Um, and we always, Taryn, we always like to end our podcasts with a, would you rather? So that's kind of like oh, a question we, yeah. And we Thank always, you. yeah. We, and we always try to cater it uh, specifically to the person that we have on. 
And today we've, uh, we've got a specific one for you. So if you're game, we'll go ahead and uh, ask, you, uh, ask you a question here. So, so uh, fun, fun fact, I was yeah. a two-time county would-you-rather champion. Just really? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was a little bit of gullibleness, a little bit of naivety, yeah, and a little bit of sarcasm. <laughs> I'm thinking like, what is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> cool. So, Taryn, would you rather win the Ironman 70.3 World Championship in New Zealand for 2021, or would you rather qualify for a spot in the Ironman World Championship in Kona for 2021? Ooh, uh, probably win the World Championship. I, I, I thought so, I thought so. And always try yeah. to qualify off. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right, and with that, um, that comes to the end of our show. Taryn, thank you again so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. You've been a gentleman. You've been very easy to speak with outside of, uh, outside of uh, Zoom. Um, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show. I know you're very busy, but we do appreciate it. Thanks yeah, for having me. It's been me. amazing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm sure it's a change for you. I know you do your podcast and your YouTube channel. So I'm glad to have uh, you on as a guest for a change. <laughs> yeah, this is neat. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks all you... Um, crusts and tendies out there that's our um followers by the way we call them pizza crusts and chicken tenders um so thank tendies. you all for attendees yeah so thanks all of you for tuning in uh once again that's another episode of the side of ranch podcast once again i'm mike and i'm ben thanks guys and thanks for tuning in <laughs>